You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let me just tell you that I thought coming into this week, this is going to be an easy sermon. I was wrong. I have long loved this passage, especially verses 10 and 11. And I even wrote up some thoughts on this back in October for the quarterly. So I thought, oh, the sermon's half done. I already wrote 1,500 words in this passage. Just blow it out to 3,000, ready to go for a sermon. It'll be an easy week. It was not. The passage turned out to be trickier than I thought, and it especially had to do with the word law. So we're going to track this as we go through the sermon. I want to tell you how I'm, how I'm seeing this word law as we go through the sermon. Does it mean laws in general and how they operate? Or is it about the commands that Christians have from Christ, new covenant commands? Or is it about Moses' law, the Old Testament? But before we get to that question... There's another one that I want to tackle first here. So we're going to approach 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11 this morning with three questions. Three questions with an answer. Number one, what is sound doctrine? What is sound doctrine? This is verse 10. And this phrase, sound doctrine, literally, it's healthy teaching. This is all over the pastorals. It appears here at the end of verse 10. And it's one of the most important concepts in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. When I said pastorals there, that's the name for the three letters together. Paul's two letters to Timothy, his one letter to Titus. They're in pastoral-type situations and roles, and so people often call them the pastoral epistles, these three letters. Last week, we saw in verse 3 that Paul wants Timothy to stay in Ephesus to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then we're going to see at the end of the letter that he's going to say, this is chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, he does not agree with the sound words, the healthy words of Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So the battle lines in Ephesus, in the church, are doctrinal. This is a war of teachers. And believe it or not, As much as it seems today that various battles aren't wars between kinds of teaching, it is amazing how often they are. Maybe it's not overt. Maybe it's not a formal teacher versus another formal teacher in a very formal setting. But what we believe about God and the world and his word, which comes to us through teaching, is typically the battle lines in the church and elsewhere. The health of the church is being threatened in Ephesus by false teaching. And Timothy's task along with the pastor elders, is to fight back with good teaching. Then we see in 2 Timothy, Paul's going to say, this is chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 in 2 Timothy. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And when Paul says that, he's not making a prophecy about the end times. This is rhetorical. He's saying to Timothy, this is going on right now, Timothy. And you know what? 2,000 years later, it's still going on. People are accumulating for themselves social media feeds that would tickle their ears in the ways that they would want to suit their own passions. There's nothing new here. It's 2,000 years old. Titus 1.9, he says that a pastor elder must hold firm the trustworthy word is taught 
so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. There's that phrase again, healthy teaching, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then again, he says to Titus, directly to Titus in chapter 2, verse 1 of Titus, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine, healthy teaching. So throughout our study here in the winter and spring in 1 Timothy, we're going to be hearing the contrast between good teaching and bad teaching, between healthy teaching, this literally healthy, sound, healthy teaching and unhealthy teaching. There is a kind of teaching that is healthy because it, because it produces a kind of healthy spiritual life called godliness throughout 1 Timothy. And he wants to produce healthy Christian living, which the false teachers are not producing, through teaching that is healthy and true. What's especially important about this first mention of the healthy teaching or the sound doctrine in 1 Timothy is that more than any other use of this phrase, which we're going to see again and again, more than any other use, this one gives us the key to what healthy teaching is, what sound doctrine is. Have you ever asked yourself, what is the determining factor? Is there, is there a determining factor? Is there a litmus test for what is good doctrine, what is true teaching, what is healthy theology or unhealthy? Is there an organizing principle in Christianity for good doctrine? Is there a heart or a core or a touchstone that makes teaching sound or unsound, healthy or unhealthy? How do you know when a sermon was good in its doctrine or bad, or a preacher, or a book, or a podcast, or a message you heard in a conversation? How do you know when it's healthy or unhealthy as a Christian? Is it sound? Is it going to produce godliness in my life? Healthy teaching produces godliness in our lives. And Paul tells us in this text, it's an amazing thing. I'm so thankful for this text. When I thought it was going to be an easy sermon at the beginning, Oh, yes, I get to talk about the key to sound doctrine. Look at the end of verse 10. It's also the beginning of verse 11. Sound doctrine, Paul says, is in accordance with the gospel. Sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel. It corresponds. It complements. It pairs with. It's of the same whole as the gospel. I mean, it seems too simple to be true. The heart and core and center and organizing principle of healthy Christian theology, in the words of verse 15 in chapter 1, is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. We call that the gospel, the good news. True doctrine for Christians explains and supports and complements that message. And false teaching blurs and mutes and obscures that message. One way to talk about how God created the world is based on Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. He appointed his son to be heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. One way to explain that is that God created the world to give it as a gift of love to his son. And he sent his son into the world as the pinnacle of all time and all history to save sinners through his death and resurrection. 
and to then ascend to the throne of the universe as king of all kings and lord of all lords. And this is the message we call the gospel, the good news of Christianity. Put it in three words. Jesus saves sinners. That's the heart and essence essence and core of our message. That's the climax of why God made the world. And that is what that is all that Christians believe and confess relates to this gospel in some way. Not just the truths that are exciting and comforting. We love to sing about God's love and his mercy and grace. Amen, that's good. But also the dark and difficult and unsettling truths about our sin and God's wrath and the eternal punishment of sinners in hell. These also relate to the gospel, explain the gospel, or of a cloth, of a whole with the gospel. So sound doctrine, Paul says, is that which is in accordance with the gospel. Christian doctrine in all its details gets its bearings from a particular message. Good, healthy teaching that produces good, healthy Christian living has the gospel of Jesus Christ at its center. It explains, it upholds, it expresses, and it is ruthlessly shaped by Jesus' person and work. This is one of the reasons that we love ending our sermons at the table. (laughs) Because even sometimes when you get off bad trajectory, bad emphasis, wrong presentation, it is so good to know you got to end it right here, brothers, isn't it? (laughs) Bring it right here to the table every time. This, This is a, this is a, kind of training wheels for us as preachers. We got to end it at the table. We got to bring it back in relationship with the gospel. So it may sound simple enough that the message about Jesus saving sinners is the touchstone, is the organizing principle of Christian theology. We need to see it in context here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul is saying this over and against the false teachers who are teaching or giving the effect of a kind of law-centeredness. He is confronting a law-centeredness in what is developing in a a version of the Christian faith with a gospel-centeredness. He sees that the effect of these teachers who desire to be teachers of the law is that they are affecting listeners to live by external letter rather than the internal Holy Spirit, which raises questions for us. It should. It raises questions because what letter, what law would Christians be living by? If they weren't living by the gospel as the the heart and center of what gets them right with God, provides power for the Christian life, then what letter would they live by? And the most obvious answer is, well, the whole Old Testament. These these Christians in in the first century, they don't yet have the New Testament canon and letters. Their scripture is the Old Testament. And Moses wrote the first five books. We've studied Genesis together in this past fall. The first five are often called the law. And the whole Old Testament together is called the law and the prophets. So I think what's meant here by the law is essentially the Old Testament. The first five books, and by extension, all the scripture of the Old Testament. Some must think that Paul, in his emphasis on the gospel and on grace, and on the power of the Spirit, is minimizing the Old Testament. This is a charge against Paul, that he's anti-law. And what Paul wants to show is, no, I am not anti-law. The law is good, but the law is not the power for the Christian life. 
Paul and, his, and all the apostles are agreed that the good news about Jesus by his spirit is the power for the Christian life. So that then leads to our second question. So number one, what is sound doctrine? The answer is sound doctrine accords with the gospel that Jesus saves sinners. Number two, how do Christians use the Old Testament properly? This is verses 8 to 10. How do Christians use the Old Testament properly? The reason I'm asking now about the Old Testament is because that mention of the phrase, the law. Last week, we saw in verse 7 that the troublemakers in Ephesus were desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And typically, when Paul talks about the law all throughout his letters, he's talking about the Old Testament, Moses' law, and by extension, the Old Testament scriptures. There's going to be a twist on this in just a minute. The false teachers here in Ephesus may be claiming that Paul has left the Old Testament behind in all his emphasis on Jesus and the gospel and grace and the internal power of the Holy Spirit to change lives rather than law-keeping. So Paul needs to clarify that it's the false teachers who are the problem, not the Old Testament. Look at verses 8 to 10. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So it's a play on words. He's saying properly, if one uses it properly. Understanding this, that law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers and fathers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So as Christians, we do not leave the Old Testament behind. We do not unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament or any of God's word. And Paul says in Romans 7, 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, it is true that with the coming of Christ, there is a new covenant which has been anticipated all along by the previous scriptures of the old covenant. And Christians, Paul says, are not under law, but under grace, meaning we're not under the old law covenant, the first covenant, which had law at its heart. We are now under a new covenant, a covenant of grace. It doesn't mean that there's no grace in the old covenant or no commands in the new covenant. Rather, there's a characterization of these covenants as law covenant and grace covenant. God's people are no longer under the first covenant, the law covenant, but are now under the grace covenant. The law, the Old Testament, is no longer the present and active covenant of the people of God, but it is our scripture, and it's good. The question is not whether Christians use the Old Testament, but how? How will we use the Old Testament? And what Paul makes clear here and elsewhere is that we as Christians read and teach in light of the coming of Christ. We engage the Old Testament at all times in gospel light. So Christians do not make the Old Testament into the bad guy. We don't pit God's first covenant teaching against the new covenant. 
and we don't pretend that the first covenant is the new covenant. And so our question is, how do we use the Old Testament lawfully? How do we use the law properly? Now, (laughs) some of you know, there is admittedly so much to say here. The courses, books, and books. We could do a whole sermon series on trying to talk comprehensively about how to use the Old Testament properly. Uh, I can't give you a a full adequate answer here, but we're going to keep doing this together. We did this in Genesis, God willing. We're going to look at Psalms this summer. We're going to keep struggling together to use the Old Testament properly, but there's some key things to have in place. And I want to give you two things here about using the Old Testament properly. One is immediately from our text, and the other is from the sister text in the pastorals of this one. Let's go there first. That's 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. If you want to have a a key text in mind in the New Testament, among others, 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 to 17, is very helpful on how Christians use the Old Testament properly. It doesn't give us every answer. There's so much more to learn and teach, but we want to have some big key things in place, and we'll get that 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. So Paul writing to Timothy still, second letter here. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's the Old Testament. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. In all Paul's celebration of the gospel and grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, he is not in any way unhitching from the Old Testament. The problem is with the false teachers, not with the true scriptures. The false teachers are teaching in such a way that the gospel is being minimized or marginalized or ignored. But Paul's key for how to orient on the Old Testament is this all-important phrase in 2 Timothy 3.15, through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings are able to make you wise through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ unlocks the Old Testament and makes the scriptures profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. So City's Church, let's take the law of Moses and all the Old Testament scriptures seriously as our scripture and meditation and joy and all that unapologetically through faith in Christ Jesus. And we'll keep learning this together as we did in Genesis, as we hope to do in Psalms, how to use the law lawfully how to use the Old Testament properly. However, I said that was one from 2 Timothy. Let's come back to our text. So back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 on how to use the law lawfully in this particular text when we have this list of sins here called a vice list. In the context of battling the false teachers who desire to be teachers of the law, Paul is going to accent one particular ongoing relevance of the Old Testament. This is what it is. It cuts through the blinders and delusions of our sin 
to make us, to make clear to us what we really know deep down that we're sinners. Verse nine, law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Now, this is where the language gets really tricky. So you can follow, follow me here for just a minute. I think in the end, we come out with the same answer, uh, but it's important to think through to make sure that we see in what Paul's doing here in chapter one, that he's not giving the only use of the Old Testament. He's giving one relevant to this controversy with these false teachers. The law, I think in verse eight, means the Old Testament. But is that also the case for the same word law in verse nine? Not sure what it is. You may have a, the word the again in verse nine. Uh, I don't know that the should necessarily be there. It's, uh, he may be using the word law slightly different in a more general sense about how law operates in verse 9. And if so, if it is the case that he's referring explicitly to the Old Testament law there, again in verse 9, who would be the just? You see that in your text, the just. The law is not laid down for the just. Another way to say the just is the righteous. And many times throughout the New Testament, the righteous are referred to as God's people. We're born as ungodly, unrighteous, but through faith in Christ, who is the righteous one, we are counted as righteous. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we grow in righteousness such that it can be said of us truly that they are the righteous. So it could be here that the just, the righteous, is a reference to Christians. But might Paul refer to the law in verse 8 and then slightly more general terms in verse 9? and appeal to how laws operate in general, including the Old Testament. Law is not laid down for the righteous, but the unrighteous. If people are righteous, if they're already doing the thing you want them to do, you don't need to lay down a law. You lay down a law when you have offenders, when people need the reminder, they need the explicit mention of the law. You lay down the law for the unrighteous. But either way, I think the Old Testament is clearly in view in verse eight. And then as he goes into his sin list, He's going to now go after the pattern of the Ten Commandments. He's going to move through Commandments 5 through 10 in a way that shows us he definitely has the Old Testament law here in mind. But the main thing to see, and this is the main point, the main takeaway of that, is that the Old Testament is good for more than just exposing sin. Paul is not saying in 1 Timothy 1 that all the Old Testament is good for is exposing sin. No, he's accenting that in this controversy with these false teachers who want to be law teachers, saying, if you want to be law teachers, why don't you expose the sin that you've been pushing under the rug? Why don't you call people to the godliness that you're not with your endless speculations about myths and genealogies? There's a rhetorical force and effect of what Paul's doing here. And just to highlight how the Old Testament is used beyond merely exposing sin, Reformed theologians have often talked about three uses of the law. The first use is that it shows us God and shows us our sin. So the first use is about exposing our sin to us. Then there's a second use. It has the effect of restraining evil in society and among Christians because we know what God's law is. It's made explicit for us. Things we know naturally by nature are made explicit in the articulation of those things in law. And then third is it's a guide for life not a grounds of our acceptance with God, but a guide for our life 
when we're in the right place with Christ and have the power of the Holy Spirit. But what the law does not do is provide pardon for our sins and power for Christian living. What the law does not give is Jesus and his spirit. God does not lay down his law for the power of the Christian life. Rather, Jesus lays down his life and Jesus sends down his spirit and the function of the law is to awaken us to our need for Jesus and his spirit. So what about this vice list? All sorts of interesting terms in the vice list. And uh, what Paul does in this list of sins is describes the unrighteous people who can be awakened to the reality of their sin and powerlessness through the law. And he begins first with six general terms. I think these six general terms pretty much parallel in some way, in a general sense, the first four of the Ten Commandments, which are Godward. The first four of the Ten Commandments relate to God. And then... He's going to go through commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, with parallels, calling out particular sins that we should know by nature are sinful and that may have been particular sins that he wants to call the false teachers for or for those who they're teaching. So look now at verses 9 and 10. So here's first, the general terms in relation to God. The law is laid down for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then, fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Then sixth, you shall not murder. For murderers. Then seventh, you shall not commit adultery. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. And Paul does a strange thing there. He, he creates a new word. I don't think we're, uh, we're aware of the particular word there he creates, man-betters. I don't think it, we have any occurrences of it before then. And what Paul means by it is it's the language of Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. It's not just about coercive forms, but it is about homosexual practice no matter the love, no matter the commitment, no matter the consensuality. This is a term for all homosexual practice. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Enslavers, kidnappers. Commandment number nine, liars, perjurers, you shall not lie. Bear false false witness. And then 10, with the commandments, commandment 10 is kind of a catch-all. You shall not covet. Here, 10 is the catch-all, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. But don't think that sinners don't know that they're in the wrong unless they hear from Moses or from Paul or from Jesus. We know by nature that these items listed, these sins and wrongs listed in 1 Timothy 1, we know by nature that this is wrong. But sin has darkened our minds and our hearts. And so we seek to justify our actions. And so God gives his law not to tell us something that we shouldn't know already by nature. He gives the law to darkened, sinful 
people to give them another warning, another explicit chance to draw out what's deep down they've been trying to suppress. He gives the law, among other reasons, to show sinners their sin, to give them another warning that they are rebels in need of reconciliation. But the role that the law plays for the unrighteous is limited. The law exposes our sin, but it cannot get us right with God. Because the law lays out what we must do, and we cannot save ourselves. God means for his law to awaken in us our need and to point us to Jesus and to his gospel as the answer. So in short, the proper use of the Old Testament is to read it and teach it with our eyes wide open to Jesus and his gospel. The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, finally, last question, why is the good news so good? Why is the good news so good? As we said at the beginning, Paul says sound doctrine or healthy teaching is in accordance with the gospel, but he doesn't stop at gospel. I'm so glad he doesn't stop at gospel because he gives us here such an amazing look into why the good news is so good. Look at verse 11. Sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, Paul says, as an apostle. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Now, at first glance, maybe that phrase doesn't seem all that extraordinary to you. Sounds like a lot of throwaway words we hear in church all the time. But these are not throwaway words for the Apostle Paul. And if we just take a minute to shake the, some of the 2,000-year dust off them from Christian culture, uh, perhaps we would see how significant and beautiful this description of the gospel is. So here we find, piled on top of each other, three of the most important words in the Bible, three of the most important realities in the universe, three words that we are so prone to hear and miss their depth and meaning, gospel, glory, blessed, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Now, gospel, we've already seen this. Gospel is the good news that God himself, in the person of his son, made a way to rescue us by faith from our sins that justly deserve eternal punishment. The heart of our faith is the gospel, not law. Good news, not mere good advice. Glory, then. What's glory? Glory is the beauty of God's perfections or the visible display in the world of God's infinite beauty and worth. God made us for his glory. When you hear that, what that means is that he designed us to show his greatness in the world. And what God is doing in all of history and in the tangible world is showing us his glory. And what is the height of his glory? Ephesians 1.6 says that it's the glory of his grace. And the glory of his grace is most clear 
in the person work of Jesus. Jesus and his rescue called the gospel is where God's glory shines its brightest. Now, how about here as we close this word blessed? This may be the trickiest of all because we usually use the word blessed in a different sense. Think about our blessing God rather than what it means for God to be blessed. Blessed here doesn't simply mean that he's worthy of our worship and that we should bless his name. We should, he is. But not only that, that's true. But as an adjective for God, it's deeper than that. He is worthy of our worship, but his being the blessed God means in essence that he is the happy God. For him to be blessed means for God to be happy, for him to be blissful, for him to be in a state that's not threatened or frustrated or sad. He's happy, he's blessed. And his happiness in all its glory is the ground of the possibility of we, his creatures, being truly, deeply, enduringly happy forever. Beneath our conduct and what we do or don't do, and beneath faithful teaching, and beneath sound doctrine, which should be the content of our teaching, is the gospel of the glory of the happy God. God is not the cosmic killjoy that many of us have feared at various times in our lives or all throughout our life. He is not frustrated and sad. God is not grumpy or sour. He's the blessed God. He is infinitely happy. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. And this infinitely happy God in all his fullness has gone public in creation and in redeeming us with the infinite worth and value of himself called his glory. And the height of his glory is the demonstration of his fullness in the sacrifice of his son for the eternal happiness of his people. It's called the gospel. And what good news it is for born lawbreakers like us. Not just that God rescues sinners, but that he is glorious and that he is gloriously happy. So as we come to the table here, this is a happy table. We have been talking in this series about putting God's house in order in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, calls the church God's household. It's the church of the living God, his household. And it is such good news that the father in this household is indomitably happy. The father in this household is happy enough for our deepest griefs, He's happy enough for our deepest pains, our deepest sadness. And you know the difference between a home where the father is contagiously happy and when he's contagiously frustrated. That's not the church. The church is not a household in which the father is chronically frustrated. The church is a household in which our father is infinitely contagiously happy, happy enough to handle our pain. You know, sometimes you want to bring a hard 
word or tough situation, and you know somebody may not feel like they don't have the emotional wherewithal to handle your pain, to bear your burden. They're bearing their own burden. They can't bear yours as well. It is not that way with the blessed God. It is not that way with our Father. He can handle our pain because he is infinitely happy. That is his glory, and that is what's available to us in his gospel. So, brothers, let's gather to the table. We will bring to you, in demonstration of our happy love and service of you, a piece of gluten-free bread. We'll retain it and eat together. This is mainly for the members of Cities Church, but if you're here with us this morning and you would embrace this gospel we've talked about, about Jesus saving sinners, we would invite you to eat with us. His body is a true bread. Let us serve you.